Welcome to the Terry Podcast, Tales from Near and Far. Read to you by Pratham Data. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Read to you by Pratham Data. Here's a quick recap. The year is 1216. The infamous King John is dead. And Henry III, only aged nine, has taken over the throne of England. He's helped by two very famous people, Hubert de Burgh and Peter de Roche. But as Henry III grows older, he's plagued by the same feebleness and capriciousness that defined his father. For some reason, with the help of a group called the Black Band, he suddenly dislikes Hubert de Burgh, who had trained him, and tries to get him killed. Then, of course, he tries to take over all the provinces of France that had once belonged to his father, but that turns out to be an absolute waste of time and a proper debacle. Then, of course, he still wanted to maintain the wars, so he started forcing the Jews to pay him sums so that he could go into battle and ended up quite segregating the Jewish population of England at that point of time. The parliament was fed up and they basically said that, hey, if you can cool down on all your machinations and planning, we will give you a little bit of money. And that is where we continue. Chapter 15. England under Henry III, called Henry of Winchester. With a parliament promising to pay Henry III a large sum of money if he could stop warring and let the barons get their own liberties afresh, Henry III readily consented. There was a great meeting held in Westminster Hall, one pleasant day in May, when all the clergy, dressed up in their robes and holding every one of them a burning candle in his hand, stood up, the barons being also there, while the Archbishop of Canterbury read the sentence of excommunication against any man and all men who should henceforth in any way infringe the great charter of the kingdom. When he had done, they all put out their burning candles with a curse upon the soul of any one and every one who should merit that sentence. The king concluded with an oath to keep the charter. As I am a man, as I am a Christian, as I am a knight, as I am a king. It was easy to make oaths and easy to break them, and the king did both, as his father had done before him. He took to his old courses again when he was supplied with money, and soon cured of their weakness the few who had ever really trusted him. When his money was gone, and he was once more borrowing and begging everywhere with a meanness worthy of his nature, he got into a difficulty with the Pope respecting the crown of Sicily, 
which the Pope said he had a right to give away, and which he offered to King Henry for his second son, Prince Edmund. But if you or I give away what we have not got and what belongs to somebody else, it is likely that the person to whom we give it will have some trouble in taking it. It was exactly so in this case. It was necessary to conquer the Sicilian crown before it could be put upon young Edmund's head. It could not be conquered without money. The Pope ordered the clergy to raise money. The clergy, however, were not so obedient to him as usual. They had been disputing with him for some time about the unjust preference of Italian priests in England and they had begun to doubt whether the king's chaplain, whom he allowed to be paid for preaching in several hundred churches, could possibly be, even by the Pope's favour, in seven hundred places at once. The Pope and the king together, said the Bishop of London, may take the mitre off my head, but if they do, they will find that I shall Put on a soldier's helmet. I pay nothing. The Bishop of Worcester was as bold as the Bishop of London and would pay nothing either. Such sums as the more timid or the more helpless of the clergy did raise were squandered away without doing any good to the king or bring the Sicilian crown an inch nearer to Prince Edmund's head. The end of the business was that the Pope gave the crown to the brother of the King of France, who conquered it for himself, and sent the King of England in a bill of £100,000 for the expenses of not having won it. The King was now so much distressed that we might almost pity him if it were possible to pity a king so shabby and ridiculous. His clever brother Richard had bought the title of the King of the Romans from the German people and was no longer near him to help him with advice. The clergy, resisting the very Pope, were in alliance with the barons. The barons were headed by Simon de Montfort, Earl of Leicester, married to King Henry's sister, and though a foreigner himself, the most popular man in England against the foreign favourites. When the king next met his parliament, the barons, led by his earl, came before him, armed from head to foot and cased in armour. When the parliament again assembled in a month's time at Oxford, this earl was at their head, and the king was obliged to consent on oath to what was called a committee of government, consisting of 24 members, 12 chosen by the barons and 12 chosen by himself. But at a good time for him, his brother Richard came back. Richard's first act the barons would not admit him into England on other terms, was to swear to be faithful to the committee of government, 
which he immediately began to oppose with all his might. Then the barons began to quarrel amongst themselves, especially the proud Earl of Gloucester with the Earl of Leicester, who went abroad in disgust. Then the people began to be dissatisfied with the barons because they did not do enough for him. The king's chances seemed so good again at length that he took heart enough or caught it from his brother to tell the committee of government that he abolished them. As to his oath, never mind that, the Pope said. And to seize all the money in the mint and to shut himself in the Tower of London. Here he was joined by the eldest son, Prince Edward, and from the tower he made public a letter of the popes to the world in general, informing all men that he had been an excellent and just king for five and forty years. As everybody knew he had been nothing of the sort, nobody cared much for this document. It so chanced that the proud Earl of Gloucester dying was succeeded by his son, and that his son, instead of being the enemy of the Earl of Leicester, was, for the time, his friend. It fell out, therefore, that these two earls joined their forces, took several of the royal castles in the country, and advanced as hard as they could on London. The London people, always opposed to the king, declared for them with great joy. The king himself remained shut up, not at all gloriously, in the tower. Prince Edward made the best of his way to Windsor Castle. His mother, the queen, attempted to follow him by water, but the people, seeing her barge rowing up the river and hating her with all their hearts, ran to London Bridge, got together a quantity of stones and mud, and pelted the barge as it came through, crying furiously, Drown the witch! Drown her! They were so near doing it that the mayor took the old lady under his protection and shut her up in St. Paul's until the danger was past. It would require a great deal of writing on my part and a great deal of reading on yours to follow the king through his disputes with the barons and to follow the barons through their disputes with one another, so I will make short work of it for both of us and only relate the chief events that arose out of these quarrels. The good king of France was asked to decide between them. He gave it as his opinion that the king must maintain the great charter, and that the barons must give up the committee of the government, and all the rest that had been done by the parliament at Oxford, which the royalists or king's party scornfully called the mad parliament. The barons declared that these were not fair terms and they would not accept them. Then they caused the great bell of St. Paul's to be tolled, for the purpose of rousing up the London people who armed themselves at the dismal sound and formed quite an army in the street. 
I'm sorry to say, however, that instead of falling upon the king's party with whom their quarrel was, they fell upon the miserable Jews and killed at least 500 of them. They pretended that some of these Jews were on the king's side and they had kept hidden in their houses for the destruction of the people a certain terrible composition called Greek fire, which could not be put out with water but only burnt the fiercer for it. What they really did keep in their houses was money. And this their cruel enemies wanted, and this their cruel enemies took, like robbers and murderers. The Earl of Leicester put himself at the head of these Londoners and other forces, and followed the king to Lewes in Sussex, where he encamped with his army. Before giving the king's forces battle here, the earl addressed his soldiers and said that King Henry III had broken so many oaths that he had become the enemy of God and therefore they would wear white crosses on their press, as if they were arrayed, not against a fellow Christian, but against a Turk. White crossed accordingly, they rushed into the fight. They would have lost the day, the king having on his side all foreigners in England, and from Scotland, John Common, John Balliol, and Robert Bruce, with all their men, but for the impatience of Prince Edward, who, in his hot desire to have vengeance on the people of London, threw the whole of his father's army into confusion. He was taken prisoner, and so was the king. So was the king's brother, the king of the Romans, and five thousand Englishmen were left dead upon the bloody cross. For this success, the Pope excommunicated the Earl of Leicester, which neither the Earl nor the people cared at all about. The people loved him and supported him, and he became the real king, having all the power of the government in his own hands, though he was outwardly respectful to King Henry III, who he took with him wherever he went, like a poor old limp court card. He summoned a parliament in the year 1265, which was the first parliament in England that the people had any real share in electing, and he grew more and more in favour with the people every day, and they stood by him in whatever he did. Many of the other barons, and particularly the Earl of Gloucester, who had become by this time as proud as his father, grew jealous of this powerful and popular earl, who was proud too and began to conspire against him. Since the Battle of Lewes, Prince Edward had been kept as a hostage and, though he was otherwise treated like a prince, had never been allowed to go out without attendants appointed by the Earl of Leicester, who watched him. The conspiring lords found means to propose to him, in secret, that they should assist him to escape, and should make him their leader, to which 
he very heartily consented. So, on a day that was agreed upon, he said to his attendants after dinner, being then at Hereford, I should like to ride on horseback this fine afternoon a little way into the country. As they too thought it would be very pleasant to have a canter in the sunshine, they all rode out of town together in a gay little troop. When they came to a fine level piece of turf, the prince fell to comparing their horses one with another, and offering bets that one was faster than another, and the attendants, suspecting no harm, rode galloping matches until their horses were quite tired. The prince rode no matches himself, but looked on from his saddle and staked his money. Thus they passed their whole merry afternoon. Now the sun was setting, and they were all going slowly up a hill. The prince's horse very fresh, and all the other horses very weary. When a strange rider mounted on grey steed appeared at top of the hill and waved his hat. What does the fellow mean? said the attendants one to another. The prince answered on the instant by setting spurs to his horse, dashing away at his utmost speed, joining the man, riding into the midst of a little crowd of horsemen who had then seen waiting under some trees, and who closed round him, and so he departed in a cloud of dust, leaving the road empty of all but the baffled attendants, who sat looking at one another while their horses drooped their ears and panted. The prince joined the Earl of Gloucester at Ludlow. The Earl of Leicester, with a part of the army and the stupid old king, was at Hereford. One of the Earl of Leicester's sons, Simon de Montfort, with another party of the army, was in Sussex. To prevent these two parts from uniting was the prince's first object. He attacked Simon de Montfort by night, defeated him, seized his banners and treasure, and forced him into Kenilworth Castle in Warwickshire, which belonged to his family. His father, the Earl of Leicester, in the meanwhile, not knowing what had happened, marched out of Hereford with his part of the army and the king to meet him. He came on a bright morning in August to Evesham, which is watered by the pleasant river Avon. Looking rather anxiously across the prospect towards Kenilworth, he saw his own banners advancing, and his face brightened with joy. But it clouded darkly when he presently perceived that the banners were captured and in the enemy's hands, and he said, It is over. The Lord have mercy on our souls, for our bodies are Prince Edward's. He fought like a true knight, nevertheless. When his horse was killed under him, he fought on foot. It was a fierce battle, and the dead lay in heaps everywhere. The old king, 
stuck up in a suit of armour on a big war horse, which didn't mind him at all, and which carried him into all sorts of places where he didn't want to go, got into everybody's way, and very nearly got knocked on the head by one of his son's men. But he managed to pipe out, I am Harry of Winchester. And the prince who heard him seized his bridle and took him out of peril. The Earl of Leicester still fought bravely until his best son Henry was killed and the bodies of his best friends choked his path and then he fell, still fighting, sword in hand. They mangled his body and sent it as a present to a noble lady, but a very unpleasant lady, I should think, who was the wife of his worst enemy. They could not mangle his memory in the minds of the faithful people, though. Many years afterwards, they loved him more than ever and regarded him as a saint, and always spoke of him as Sir Simon the Righteous. And even though he was dead, the cause for which he had fought still lived, and was strong and forced itself upon the king in every hour of victory. Henry found himself obliged to respect the great charter, however much he hated it, and to make laws similar to the laws of the great Earl of Leicester, and to be moderate and forgiving towards the people at last, even towards the people of London who had so long opposed him. There were more risings before all this was done, but they were set to rest by these means, and Prince Edward did his best in all things to restore peace. One, Sir Adam de Gourdon, was the last dissatisfied knight in arms, but the prince vanquished him in a single combat in the wood and nobly gave him his life and became his friend instead of slaying him. Sir Adam was not ungrateful. He ever afterwards remained devoted to his generous conqueror. When the troubles of the kingdom were thus calmed, Prince Edward and his cousin Henry took the cross and went away to the Holy Land with many English lords and knights. Four years afterwards, the king of the Romans died, and next year, 1272, his brother, the weak king of England, died. He was 68 years old then, and had reigned 56 years. He was as much of a king in death as he had been in life. He was a mere pale shadow of a king at all times. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.